This program was first broadcast on Canterbury's access media station, Plains FM, and was made with the assistance of New Zealand On Air. hold a free public meeting on subjects of community concern. This month, they invited Leanne Dalziel, past mayor and member of parliament for Otautahi Christchurch. She'll be speaking about resilient cities. It's with great pleasure that we have Leanne, our friend, with us tonight. Um, and Leanne is going to be talking with us about resilient cities. I'm looking forward to this because when she promoted the title, I thought, well, hmm, this sounds something that I haven't really looked into. My field is domestic and family violence. I guess you can say that it's very much related mm. to community. But, um, yeah, so resilient communities. Um, Leanne recently, as many of you will know, stepped down as Mayor of Christchurch, New Zealand, Aotearoa the country where women first won the right to vote in the world 130 years ago this year. Wow, wow. Yes. <laughs> Leanne was a Member of Parliament when the Christchurch earthquake struck and was elected two years later as the city's Mayor. In her time as Mayor, Leanne has had to face a range of challenges, including the terrorist attack on the city's two mosques in 2019. She's a former Cabinet Minister and long-serving Member of Parliament, and has become active in international disaster risk reduction and sustainable development cooperation. She has recently been appointed to the Global Board of Directors of the Resilient Cities Network. Welcome, Leanne. Thank you. Um, it's a bit uh, daunting being standing up in front of uh, a group of people. Uh, I was talking to somebody the other day and I said, um, I'm not anything now. You know, in the past I could stand up and I was a member of parliament or I was uh, a, a, a cabinet minister or I was um, at one stage the, the mayor of Christchurch. And that gave me a position to speak from but I don't have a position to speak from. So these uh, views are entirely my own and um, I'm completely and only accountable to myself for them. So thank you very much for the opportunity to talk tonight. And I hope that we can engage with each other in a bit of a conversation uh, because what, what um, often, I, I had a parliamentary colleague once who used to say that uh, you know, dialogue was way more productive than monologue. Um, but, you know, I've, I've written notes and probably would have done a PowerPoint if I'd thought that there was a means of using one. But sometimes it's a bit more of a crutch than it is a tool because uh, I use it really to hide behind um, uh, a little bit. Uh, but that's just, um, that's just a, a, that's probably a bit too personal to take any further. Um, I know that COVID has disrupted many opportunities that we've had to come together as communities to discuss things that we're deeply interested in. And um, if you think about uh, what we're doing tonight, that I hope that it serves as a bit of a, a catalyst for the kind of conversation that the online environment doesn't always encourage. 
Uh, I think although the internet enabled us to stay in touch with each other uh, during COVID, um, it also encouraged or amplified some rather poor behaviour, um, disinformation as opposed to misinformation, and, um, and also abusive behaviour, which the guarantee of anonymity seemed to embolden a large number of people to participate in. Um, and I think that's why opportunities like this are so valuable. And tonight, although my conversation is around resilient cities, it is in the context of reclaiming our inner citizen and our communities. And uh, that, 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 that's something that helps us to build resilience. Now, I know that a lot of people react really badly to the word resilience and nowhere more so than in this city of Autotahi Christchurch. Uh, it is a word that I shuddered to use from time to time because people reacted so badly. The reason people reacted so badly to it was that so many people came into our city and told us how resilient we were. And actually, quite frankly, we got sick of it. One, because they weren't using the correct word. What they meant was stoic. And we are. Cantabrians are very stoic people. You say to somebody, you know, how are you? No matter how bad it is, people will say, I'm okay. And that's stoicism. It is not resilience. Resilience is something deeper. In fact, I want to say to you that it is not an end state. There is no such thing as being resilient. You are always in the process of building resilience. That's um, the way that I've come to know it. Um, resilience is a powerful word for me and um, if I had my slides with me tonight I would have put up a word cloud and these are some of the words that are on a resilience word cloud um, and I use it to emphasize that it doesn't mean strong. Uh, it highlights words like flexibility, adaptation, creativity, diversity, community, respect, change, cooperation, and actually one of my favourite words, reciprocity. Giving and receiving. Um, very much uh, that capacity to adapt and to thrive in the face of adversity and to co-create a new normal when there is no going back to the way things were before. That's what I've come to understand resilience as. Now, if we're going to co-create a new normal um, when there is no going back to the way things were, then that requires trust. And it requires trust both ways. Decision makers, governments, councils and communities, they need to trust each other. And I want to explore that a little bit as well. And it requires communities to actively seek to take back responsibility for their future. And that's why um, I've focused on resilient cities and resilient communities in my time uh, since the earthquakes in particular, because they're the essence of reclaiming the agency that I believe that we have lost. I read a book over Christmas called Citizens, Why the Key to Fixing Everything is All of Us. I think that's a really good title. Um, it was written by an English guy called John Alexander and it challenges us to think about what it means to be a citizen. 
And uh, when I read it, it found me musing about another book that I'd read about a decade ago. And I was put onto it when um, a colleague of mine had, had read it and she gave it to me to read. Um, and, and the reason she gave it to me to read was that I was exploring some of the issues in central government in terms of some answers that I was looking for. And then obviously later in local government, it had real relevance as well. And that was because the answers were to be found in the communities themselves. So this other book, and some of you may have read it, it's called The Abundant Community, Awakening the Power of Families and Neighbourhoods. And it's written by uh, two guys, John McKnight and Peter Block. Um, and they led me to realise that we as citizens in the broadest sense have ceded our power to central and local government at a great cost to our sense of agency as communities. And I noticed this after the earthquakes because that agency, our ability to do things for ourselves, returned in an instant in the aftermath of a crisis. We proved ourselves capable of doing things we otherwise would expect other people to do for us. And we didn't do that alone. We did that as neighbours. We did that as communities, whether they were pre-existing or newly formed. You'll remember um, the Student Volunteer Army. That was a, an emergent leadership organisation partnering with the Farmy Army. And the Farmy Army were, weren't called the Farmy Army until there was a Student Volunteer Army. But the people in the rural areas, they know exactly what to do in a, in a crisis. They know how to come together and help. And actually, those two groups standing side by side, shoulder to shoulder, was an example, an exemplar of what that might, might mean. The Littleton Project worked hand in glove with HMNZS Canterbury, which just happened to be in port. Now, there were a number of conspiracy theorists who thought it was in port for a reason, um, but uh, that, that was not true. And, um, and of course, communities took the lead in setting up food distribution networks everywhere. I, I remember walking alongside the, the Grace uh, Vineyard Church um, you know, as, a, as an MP, working with the police. We got a food distribution set up in New Brighton, um, you know, in about 24 hours. It was extraordinary, the community effort uh, that was able to be called on. I think um, that the, the point that I'm going to make, though, and it, it's not just communities of geography either. I'm not just talking about neighbourhoods. I'm talking about communities of interest. I'm talking about communities of identity, people who come together in various forms of community. Um, but that didn't last. And I always used to say that the great thing about the earthquakes was that all the silos came tumbling down. But boy, it didn't take long for people to start building them back up as quickly as they possibly could. There are silos that exist within large organisations. There are silos that exist between organisations. And when you've got large organisation working alongside large organisation, then those silos can be incredibly debilitating in my experience. So it was a shame to see them building back up. And I, I was actually telling someone a story just the other day 
um, about how I previously had been the opposition spokesperson on civil defence and um, I, I uh, went around the country uh, meeting civil defence groups all around the country. There was a distinct difference between going to a district um, council or going to or a regional council or going to um, a city-based council. So even like we've got the Canterbury Regional Council here. I'm not talking about anything that's city-based. City-based was different from the small districts. And the difference was this. The small districts always turned up with their land use planner. And that's because small districts know very well that if they're going to be facing a civil defence um, emergency, then what the land uses are in that area are core critical and potentially the cause of um, the civil defence emergency. Not so in cities. And that's my example that I always use of how silos operate in large organisations and how they can be, they can prevent us from seeing um, the broader um, and bigger picture. So it didn't last. The government was soon back in charge, uh, certainly here after the earthquakes. And, and that is a shame because we had such a powerful building blocks, or we had such powerful building blocks for resilience. Both sets of writers, so both John Alexander and, and John McKnight and Peter Block, they, they um, warn us of the dangers of dependency that results from governments defining and then fixing our problems for us. So often people will talk about people who are dependent, you know, dependency, benefit dependency, but actually there is a dependency um, on social services generally that we would normally provide within communities ourselves. And, and this was the point that they were making, that we were essentially being robbed of our capacity, our collective capacity to problem solve and reducing our ability to build resilience together. And that's something we're actually going to need in spades as we confront real issues that, are, that we're having to confront now, like, like climate change. Both books, both books have a really strong focus on the impact of consumerism on our lives. So we, we are no longer citizens living in neighbourhoods when we are defined by what we consume. We become consumers. We become clients. We become recipients of services. And so we're losing that sense of agency as citizens when, we, um, when, when governments serve our needs as they define them we lose our capability as communities to utilise our strengths to um, do things for themselves. And that, that was the example that was used in the Abundant um, Community, which was a, a story um, of a disabled person living in a community, being assessed for a service, which resulted in, in him being picked up by a volunteer, taken to a centre where the service provider provided the service, whether it was an activity centre, and at the end of the session, a volunteer would take them back home. So that was contrasted with, 
actually he could have joined the local bowling club with the addition of an accessibility ramp being the only extra cost that would be required. He would have got to know his neighbours. He didn't get to do that by being taken away to somewhere else to be the client of a service provider instead of a citizen as part of the community. I think there's a few heads nodding, so I think people are understanding that I'm not saying that, um, that we should abandon people to look out for themselves. I'm saying we should take collective responsibility for um, problem solving together and addressing issues together. And that's what we have kind of been robbed of without actually noticing that that's what's gone. Um, you know, and I, I quite often use a picture of a, um, of a overflowing rubbish tin in a certain suburb, which shall remain nameless, uh, where somebody had stuck a picture of this um, messy rubbish tin that had rubbish all over the ground around it. And of course, the problem was, because this had gone up on Facebook, whole lot of comments, whose fault was that? Council, yeah. Council left all that rubbish there, yep. Council had time to take photographs of it and not pick up any of it, yep. So, um, yeah, no, so it, all of a sudden, I pay my rates so somebody from council should come and pick up my rubbish. When I was a kid, we were brought up to pick up rubbish if we saw it where it wasn't supposed to be. It's not a, it's not a, a great example, but I'm, the point that I'm trying to make is, is that there, there are elements of what we now sort of really um, delegate to, um, to our rates and our taxes um, somehow has taken away our sense of collective responsibility for the place that we that we live. So the um, now the um, McKnight actually went through this in quite a lot of detail in one of the articles that he wrote. I got, kind of got into this subject and I thought it was quite interesting. The first is the consequence of seeing individuals primarily in terms of their needs. And it's that glass half full, glass half empty. Needs focus on deficits. And I think we learned, and certainly in Aranui, where I've been, um, was uh, the MP for a number of years, we learned in Aranui more than 20 years ago that when we started with our strengths, we were in a much better position to think about our um, strategic plans for the future. And I remember advocating for the new schools. So you remember that they closed down a whole lot of schools. Um, and uh, I didn't necessarily agree with the model that they were, they were choosing. But um, I did say that if I was going to advocate for anything, it was what that school was going to be modelled on. Were we going to start with the deficits that existed in the community? And if you start with the deficits, then you put in a health centre, you put in a dental chair, you put in the truancy services, you put in the police, the youth aid officers, you know, so that's, that's your deficit model. When you start with your strengths, you think of all of that talent that goes into that school. Think what the kids bring to that school every day. So, and you think about their artistic ability, you think about 
you know, I mean, they, they won the Shakespeare competition year on year on year. You know, they, 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 bring, they, they bring all of that talent. They've got, um, they've got uh, art, music, carving, creative writing, performance. So if you start with the strings, then you'd build studios, performance venues, galleries to, to display their work. You would, um, but most importantly, and more importantly than all of that, is that you'd build a business school so that they would have the ability to turn their talent into their life career. And, um, and they would then be in a position to take their talent and build on their strengths and their talent um, to have a future. So which, which one did they choose? Which one did they choose for Aranui? I mean, we all know which one we, they chose. Um, the second issue McKnight raised was the amount of money that goes to service providers rather than the people whose primary need is income, economic, um, or, or choice and economic opportunity rather than um, service, therapy, and labels, and he spends quite a bit of time talking about the self-fulfilling prophecy of labels, labeling people in a category, and then finding services following those labels, stripping again the community of any chance of building its own capacity as a um, as a as a community. And that was the third concern the undermining of the role of the community as the social space where citizens and associations solve problems. And I guess the local bowling club is, a, is an example of that. For those people whose primary need is to be incorporated um, in community life and empowered through citizenship, they simply became clients of service providers who um, in turn call on community members to support them, the service providers, <laughs> not the neighbours. Um, and, uh, you know, th th this was kind of a, a bit of a, um, an eye-opener for me when I thought of it this way. Community life becomes weakened and distorted as citizens, now called volunteers, are converted into fundraisers for service providers... <laughs> and become unpaid workers for the same service providers. I mean, I'm, I'm putting it in, the, in a terrible light here, but you can see how things can slip away when things that we didn't perhaps value for what they brought to our lives collectively, um, you know, what that, what that has, um, has potentially stripped us of. So the question I ask is, do we want to be consumers of government services or citizens active in our neighbourhoods and communities helping to solve problems that impact on us all? And I guess when the question is asked like this, so we begin to see how much agency we've been stripped of, not just as individual um, citizens, but as communities. And I guess my view is that building resilience is about rebuilding that sense of agency. But it is a hard ask, because I don't think most people notice. I don't think that we've actually noticed um, what we've lost. Uh, when I wrote about this recently, 
I actually asked if we could be the nation that leads the way in, in turning this around. What about participatory democracy um, and crowdsourcing solutions to problems that we ought to be able to solve together? Um, I'd said, I actually said in this um, column that I wrote that I'd rather that that was the introduction to the book Citizens than reading, and this is an exact quote from the introduction to that book, instead of reading that New Zealand was described as one of the lifeboats that some of the richest people in the world are scrambling onto. <laughs> I actually felt ashamed to read that. Um, and how, I, I, you know, I, I just, it just seemed to me that the, 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 the citizen story, which is the basis of this book, is about the empowerment of us all to co-invent and nurture our own futures. So I think that could be our story. We could turn that around and we are a small enough um, city to be a leader, Kate Shepherd, um, and we are a small enough nation to be a leader in the world. I was reading the history of Rotary. I'm a member of the Rotary. So, um, and it's called Rotary because they used to rotate around the different offices that the men worked in. Um, and it was the men who had basically come into the city to work and, and to establish their families. And, um, but so they had moved from small towns into large cities in, a, in America where it started. And uh, they, they didn't have the relationships that they had in the small towns. In small towns, reciprocity isn't, I do it for you, you do it for me. Reciprocity is, I'll do it for you, you'll do it for the next neighbour, and you know, and, and what goes around comes around. Rotary was based on that philosophy, getting to know each other and, um, and getting to, to undertake good works together, but that, was, that, but that was based on what was missing from their small towns is, is that it was hard to get to know people. And, and that's been the case, I think, in larger cities everywhere, that the more people that people know around them, the, the, the safer and more secure and the better their lives are. And a, a, a book that I read ages ago was about the Chicago fire. And people who had the... It didn't, social standing wasn't the issue, you know, it wasn't your, site, your, your um, economic status, it was whether you knew people in your building. And if you knew people in your building, you, the chances are you didn't die. Um, no, it was the heat wave, it wasn't the fire, it was the heat wave. And, um, but if you didn't know people in your building, then you did. Yeah, so it was, it's all about building community. So, and I, I'm not someone who believes in individuals on their own, you know, that sort of no man is an island. It's, it's the question of collectively what we can do for each other. Now, I agree that people need, need assistance and support and help. Um, and I know that people couldn't afford to do it completely on their own. But sometimes some of these service providers have been built around fixing something that is a deficit or repairing a deficit 
instead of looking at the strengths of the individual and the community they're in. Ergo, the bowling club. So it's not that every, everything can be catered for in the community, um, and it's not that everything can't be provided by, um, uh, by a service provider, you know, so, because there will be um, instances. Some people are not capable of um, getting themselves out of bed in the morning. It's about people caring for each other. Yeah, I don't think I don't think what I'm trying to say is is that um, that that neighbours should provide uh, social services for their neighbours. What I'm saying is is that if neighbours if neighbours were genuinely a community, and there were community activities, um, then it's isn't it better that the community activities are inclusive uh, rather than taking people out of the community. Um, and, and on this particular one, I'm talking about somebody who, who was perfectly capable of playing bowls but needed an accessibility um, ramp for the, for the local bowling club. And uh, the bowling clubs, you know, are, I mean, yeah, I, I'm trying to think of it. There's another book that was written um, called Bowling Alone. And it was about how people don't belong to clubs anymore. And it's for your reason, time poor. You know, people are so uh, time poor. And I think of um, schools struggling to find um, mainly fathers to be coaches for their kids' um, teams, you know, because they're just time poor. People are so stretched. So it's what a, what a community can do collectively rather than um, individually and it doesn't mean that we provide every single service uh, within the community. What it does mean though is that we think about what would help build the strength of the community, what would help build community resilience. And um, one of the things that I did want to talk about was, um, was the um, question of uh, uh, democratic participation and whether participatory democracy was a bit of a, a, a step towards some of these things because everyone can participate in, in, uh, in participatory democracy but I want to define it. I don't want us to talk about simply voting people into office because that is uh, representative um, democracy. I think we need to go a step further and um, and so reading the citizens book I, um, I, I was quite struck by uh, the, um, the way that they took what had, um, that, sorry it was an abortion debate in, in Ireland and uh, so to, to remove the ban on abortion in Ireland was considered by most to be you know, beyond the realm of possibility. So what they did was that they set up a citizens' assembly, which was uh, made up of a relatively representative group of about 100 people. And they, um, over a period of five weeks, they had presentations to them. They uh, received expert um, uh advice, they received a whole lot of information from, from people who were for and against um, removing the ban, um, keeping the ban. So they, they had everyone presenting. The whole thing was conducted in the public. 
And so therefore, uh, and there was a lot of media coverage of it. And at the end, uh, there was a vote recommending that there be a, uh, a referendum to remove the ban. And the percentage of people who voted on the citizens uh, panel matched almost exactly the percentage of Irish people who voted in the referendum to remove the ban. And I thought, isn't that a better way of tackling hard issues and actually using it as an opportunity, as an education tool? And the interesting thing is, is that by doing it this way, it actually reduced the amount of disinformation which was, which was able to be soaked into the conversation through social media. Um, because it wasn't a, because they had a, a single source of truth, as it were, for all of the different views that were being presented on the subject, um, the other elements were really played down. And I'm quite worried about the impact of social media and the, the role that it is able to play in really undermining people's confidence and ability even to run for public office, you know. And I've, I've just, I mean, we've seen um, Jacinda Ardern in the way that um, she stepped down with uh, nothing left in the tank, I think was the way she described it. Um, and I just heard a, a podcast uh, that referenced um, Hillary Clinton as well. And she um, was saying that she'd been asked to speak to, um, while she was over in Ireland recently, she'd been asked to speak to women politicians in the UK. And uh, they were asking about how they could protect themselves, you know, physically protect themselves. And, you know, so, so it, it's becoming a very unstable uh, environment. And I'm just hope, I'm, I personally believe that building capacity and resilience within communities is actually possibly the only, the only antidote to what I'm seeing going on um, that I can think of. But I'd be really interested to know whether other people have been thinking about this and whether this is something that, you know, that, that, that is worth exploring, exploring further. Uh, the way that I look at it is that central government uh, has, has looked at the nature of the problem um, and I think come up with a solution rather than working through the issues uh, with the, a broader representative of the community. So let me give you an example. When, when, the, um, when the government first announced that they were going to review the Three Waters, which was the national government announced that they were going to review it after the incidents and incident in, in the Hawke's Bay. So um, after the Havelock North poisoning, that they, um, they announced that there was going to be a review of Three Waters. Um, and... The thing was, was that there was a lot of discussion about that at the time, and then there was a change of government, and then it was continued, and uh, further announcements were made. As a former cabinet minister, I have to say that I totally understand why a government would be really worried 
about the exposure that the country has to such a vast underinvestment in its three water, well two water infrastructure, drinking water and wastewater. The drinking water and wastewater um, infrastructure deficit is massive. And I wouldn't want to be sitting around um, a, a, a cabinet table in 20 years time seeking to retrofit decisions that ought to be made now. So, so I totally understand the reason why. Does that mean that I agree with all aspects of the model that they uh, came up with? No, it doesn't. Do, do I think that there should be a far, a, a different approach with stormwater than there is with drinking water and wastewater? Yes, I do. Um, and, and why? We can't even have that conversation because people get into, you know, sort of ridiculous arguments about, about elements of the announcement instead of talking about the substance of the issue. And I, what I'm saying is, is that if we could have a citizens' assembly, for example, on the infrastructure deficit that exists within our core infrastructure as a nation, um, then maybe we'd be in a better position to be able to actually work out what the answer should look like, rather than just saying black and white, they are wrong, we are right, you know, and that's happening on both sides of the equation. But there, there is one more element that I just want to talk about because this model um, of, um, of citizens' assemblies, uh, they, they really do show that, that um, well-informed citizens are more than capable of understanding the issues and contributing meaningfully to, meaningfully to the debate. And I guess that governments can take some comfort in what is a non-aligned participatory democracy um, improving the quality of the debate. And that's what I don't see. I don't see quality debate. I certainly don't see it online. I just see people attacking people um, for um, positions they may have adopted. But there's another aspect um, of Aotearoa that needs to be taken into account. So Māori settled this country a long time before Te Tiriti was signed. Despite the commitments that were made, Mātauranga Māori have not been embedded into what is a British constitutional set of arrangements and um, institutions. And I think we owe it to ourselves and to future generations to think about what particip participatory democracy could look like without this floor. Is that something we could have a collective conversation about? I actually don't know the answer to this, but I do know that some of the ways that I have seen this being debated are incredibly destructive and we need to find a better way. Um, I, I um, felt that when I listened to a Māori woman describing, actually during the Three Waters debate, the history of um, Tūrangi, which was built on her family's ancestral land, it was taken under the Public Works Act. The wastewater treatment plant was built on Wahitapu, discharging treated um, wastewater into Lake Taupo, which is, um, which is you know, part of their ancestral um, land. Uh, um, and the stormwater discharged into and destroyed their mahinga kai. So 
and I sat there listening to this story and I, I, I remember several of us saying this would have been a better, better conversation starter than the stupid ads that were put on television to kick off the debate. This was a really meaningful story. And I've been telling another story um, because I think we need to know these stories to help us build understanding and trust between ourselves and each other. I'm saddened to say that I didn't know the history of Ihutai Reserve until after I became the mayor. Now, I don't know um, how many people here know the story of Ihutai Reserve. So... Um, the Native Lands Court on the 7th of May, 1868, Justice Fenton presiding, um, said that the court um, had found that reserves had not been created as agreed in the Crown's purchase negotiations for Canterbury and Otago, um, the Kemp deed. So the Kemp deed was the purchase of all of Otago and all of Canterbury except for um, Banks Peninsula. So Banks Peninsula was a separate purchase. And in that purchase, it was agreed that land would be um, set aside, um, or that reserves would be set aside and for Mahingakai. So it was for the gathering of food. Um, and so the court ordered seven reserves to be created in Otago and Canterbury, and one of them was Ihutai. Ihutai is the estuary, the Ihutai Reserve. So the land on the, on the edge of the estuary for Mahingakai, and the tribe was, or the sub-tribe, the hapu, was Naituhuriri, Naituahuriri. And um, they are, so they were granted that reserve. In 1956, Ihutai Reserve was taken under the Public Works Act. Guess what for? A wastewater treatment plant. And it was vested in the Christchurch Drainage Board. So how do, how do we know the hurt and the damage that has been done when we don't even know the stories? I mean, I was horrified to read this and th there's more to this story than than that there was actually agreement made with the council a squillion years ago that um, this this travesty would be resolved by the granting of um, little Hagley Park you know the little stretch um, on Harper Ave uh, to Naituhuriri and um, and that was that was decided not to proceed with, but there was no, there's no record of why, why that was the case. And I guess if we understood our history, then maybe we could understand why a British system, absent Matauranga Māori, how we should not be the be all and end all that decides our future. And if you, I mean, I, I just want to find a way of having this conversation. And um, I'm actually quite excited about what we could achieve as a nation if uh, we were able to um, turn our mind to it in the true spirit of, of Te Tiriti. 
So maybe we could build a unique model of participatory democracy that could see um, trust res restored. So that's, that, that was just my series of thoughts for the conversation. <laughs> Listening to Leanne Dalziel speaking at the April Quaker Forum, a series of free monthly public meetings on subjects of community concern. Visit their website for information on future events, quakers.nz.